Hello, and welcome back to Disaster Diving. For this week's episode, we are once again traveling back to the 80s. I hadn't planned on focusing so much on that time period, but I kept being drawn in by disasters from that period when I was looking through things. There is a bit of logic there when you think about it. There were a lot of very lethal disasters through the 1980s. This was due to an increase in technology and scope of operations in very risk-based industries, such as aviation and oil and gas. This led to a similar boom in safety science studies and regulation in the 90s, which anyone who studies safety will be very familiar with. Anyway... Here we go, on to the sinking of the Ocean Ranger. So before we dive in, I did want to say I edited my very first podcast last week, and I had a few notes for myself, such as to slow down my talking and to enunciate a bit more, which I'm trying to do. It's taking me a little bit of work, though. I also noticed there is a fair amount of background noise from my animals, And I'm trying to get rid of this, but I have three dogs, a cat, and two bunnies. And trying to negotiate with all of them is impossible. So I am trying, but even as I say that, I have my cat purring and kneading a blanket beside me. And a dog grooming himself in the background. So we will see what happens here. Now, on to this week's disaster. This one is actually Canadian, and what's interesting to me is I hadn't actually heard about it before I started researching. In my defense, it does seem to be mostly remembered and commemorated on the East Coast, and that is an area of Canada I am not very familiar with, although I do very much want to travel there. My partner and I are actually planning a road trip with all of our dogs after the pandemic is over. Anyway, back to the horrible tragedy. The Ocean Ranger was an oil rig. It was mobile, meaning it could move, and it was semi-submersible. Part of it was underwater. When it was built, it was the world's largest semi-submersible oil rig to date. Semi-submersible rigs are more stable compared to rigs that float on the surface, as they are less vulnerable to wave action. It was built in 1976 by Mitsubishi in Hiroshima, Japan. I have actually been there, side note. It was designed and owned by the Ocean Drilling and Exploration Company Incorporated, known as Odeco, which is located in New Orleans. It could drill to a maximum depth of 25,000 feet or 7,600 meters. It was built to withstand harsh conditions, winds up to 100 knots, or 110-foot-high waves. Before moving to the Grand Banks area in 1980, it had operated off the coasts of New Jersey, Ireland, and Alaska. The Grand Banks area is located just off of the coast of Newfoundland and is known for producing the steepest waves in North America. Besides its petroleum reserves, abundant fishing is also located there. So even though it is a harsh area, it's quite a populated area when it comes to industrial boats. 
On November 26, 1981, the Ocean Ranger began drilling its third well in the Hibernera oil field in the Grand Banks. That's an oil field located about 350 kilometers off the coast of St. John's, Newfoundland in Canada. There it stayed until February 1982. At this point, there were 84 people on board, 56 of them from Newfoundland, Canada. On February 14th, Nordco, the company responsible for issuing offshore weather forecasts, reported an approaching storm linked to a major Atlantic cyclone. This storm had begun two days earlier as a weak disturbance off the Gulf of Mexico. By the 13th, it was centered south of Nova Scotia, and it gathered strength as it moved towards Newfoundland. The rig continued drilling until 4.30 p.m., at which point it quote-unquote hung off, meaning it disconnected its drill pipe and retracted it for safety and prepared to wait out the storm. For most of the evening, the rig was battered by hurricane-force winds traveling at over 100 kilometers per hour and waves the size of five-story buildings as high as 27 meters. Meteorologists said a storm like that only occurs in that location every 10 to 12 years. So it's not unheard of. I mean, a few would occur in your lifetime, but it's rare and it's still a very big storm. Around 7 o'clock in the evening, Two other rigs in the area reported being hit by a rogue wave. A rogue wave is a wave that naturally occurs in open water, and it's significantly larger than the average occurring wave in the area. My brother became really interested in these a few years ago, and I remember him telling me that they can actually grow to mammoth proportions. They're like tidal waves, or almost like tsunamis, but in the middle of the ocean, not close to land. This one wasn't that bad, though. Uh, it only caused minor damage to the surrounding rigs. It would have looked dramatic, but you would encounter them. The Ocean Ranger did not make any radio calls regarding this particular wave, but it's assumed they were hit, as they did make radio calls regarding some broken glass, water, and valves opening and closing of their own accord. To be clear, we still don't really know if those valves opening and closing were due to poor maintenance practices or the operators on the rig making mistakes or due to damage from the wave. Just after 9 o'clock p.m., the Ocean Ranger confirmed to the other rigs that a port light, which is a window in a ship or a rig, had broken in their ballast control room, but it wasn't serious, or it wasn't considered serious at the time. The Ocean Ranger also radioed the shore operator with their standard weather report just after 11.30 p.m. This was the last normal communication from the rig before all hell broke loose. At 1 o'clock a.m. on February 15th, the senior manager on the Ocean Ranger contacted the shore to report that the rig was listing. Listing on a ship or a rig means leaning heavily to one side. A supply vessel in the area named the Sealand Highlander received a call shortly after to, to request that it move closer to the rig. At 1.10 a.m., the Ocean Ranger began sending mayday calls. Final message from the Ocean Ranger was at 1.30 a.m. to report that there would be no more radio calls as the crew were evacuating to the lifeboats, just half an hour after the first notification of the issue. Now, these men were at the mercy of the rough sea, filled with high waves and winds the force of hurricane winds. 
This was clearly a major emergency, and everyone in the vicinity was aware. Even so, it was almost impossible for nearby ships to battle the storm and search for survivors. The two oil rigs that were nearby each dispatched a supply ship to search for survivors, but two hours had passed before there were any signs of life. The Seaforth Highlander spotted flares from a lifeboat at 2.21 a.m. and headed toward it. They were able to get a line attached to the lifeboat, and the first officer of the Seaforth Highlander came within feet of grabbing one of the men. But tragically, the heavy storm caused the line to snap and the lifeboat to capsize before a single man could be saved. At 2.45 a.m., another supply ship named Bolt Tentor arrived at the sinking Ocean Ranger and noted that there were no lifeboats still attached nor signs of life on board. The Ocean Ranger fully sank shortly afterwards. Search and rescue efforts persisted throughout the night and the following day, and while empty lifeboats and bits of debris were found, tragically, there were no survivors, not one. Another supply ship, Nordator, did spot the lifeboat that the Seaforth Highlander had come so close to rescuing and could tell there were bodies inside, but were unable to recover it, and that lifeboat was never seen again. That story of that lifeboat just kills me. They were so close to being survivors, but... Oh, it's just horrifying. In the days afterward, 22 bodies were recovered. That's 22 of the 84 on board. All had died from drowning and hypothermia. About a month later, on March 17, 1982, the Chief Commissioner of the Newfoundland Supreme Court established the Royal Commission on the Ocean Ranger Marine Disaster. The goal of this commission was to find why the Ocean Ranger sank and why no one survived despite a full evacuation, and to make recommendations to the Canadian government to make the entire industry safer. The U.S. Coast Guard with the NTSB also completed an inquiry, specifically looking for causes of the accident. The Canadian investigation lasted for over two years and cost over $10 million. They found that water had entered the rig through the shattered port light, which was lower than the wave level. The intense waves had pushed a great deal of water through the port light into the ballast control room. Ballasts and pontoons are a series of weights and floats that keep a rig floating and upright. The ballast controls had a series of shorts that opened valves to the pontoons, flooding them. The crew had not been trained properly in what to do regarding issues with the ballast control room, so while it could have been possible to manually override the Arrhenius controls and save the rig, no one on board could do so. There were also signs that the crew had tried to blindly operate the controls despite not knowing what they were doing in efforts to save the rig. What I found interesting was at the same time, during the 1980s in Norway, there was strict regulation in place that meant on a rig, there had to be a senior engineer with at least seven years training running the ballast controls. Which is crazy. How can there be on one rig in Norway, someone who needs seven years of training to do a job that no one on board is trained to do offshore Newfoundland? Something went wrong there, and that's just... That's just insane. I know that places like Norway tend to have stricter regulation, um, but Canada does not tend to be that far behind. We are still more um, heavy on the regulation than many other places, so I, I don't understand. It just seems insane. Okay, the big focus of this investigation became lifeboats, and that's where a lot of the research was spent. So let's take a moment to talk about the lifeboats. 
When recovering pieces of wreckage, it was found that many of the lifeboats had been smashed against the sides of the rig and sunk while being lowered into the water. So no one could be loaded into them, or if anyone was in them, they would have drowned. Lifeboats like those in the Ocean Ranger are lowered from the rig using a winch and two cables. When the boat reaches the water, a helmsman inside the lifeboat activates a release cable. He has to get the timing exactly right. If the boat is released as the crest of the wave passes, it could tumble deep into the trough of the wave and smash apart. According to a lifeboat designer named Dan O'Brien, he actually worked on the Ocean Ranger in 1981, most lifeboat launch systems are unsafe. That system, which is called a davit system of using cables to lower lifeboats, is 500 years old and historically has an 86% failure rate. Can you imagine what else do we do? Imagine all of your sa- all of your safety relying on something that has an 86% failure rate. Imagine the seatbelts in your car having an 86% failure rate. Because the boats hang from cables, davit systems seldom work when a ship or rig is listing badly. So when you need them, which is generally, you don't evacuate a ship if everything's running fine. You tend to evacuate when it's listing. They evacuated the Titanic when it was listing. So when you most need it, it doesn't even work. The British Marine Accident Investigation Branch also reported over a 10-year period from the 80s to the 90s, 12 people were killed and 87 injured during lifeboat drills in non-emergency situations, as this equipment is so hazardous. Which, again, is crazy. So these are the companies that are actually doing the drills, doing everything right, and people are dying just from trying to simulate an emergency. Why was the system ever in use? What other system do we use that's 500 years old and doesn't even work? So... This does actually have some benefits researching all of this. This commission actually uh, investigated a new system for launching lifeboats, and that system was developed five years after the Ocean Ranger disaster, using fiberglass poles to prevent the boat from smashing into the side of the rig. The commission also recommended that the Canadian government develop standards regarding oil rig evacuation equipment and procedures, but the government called off this research in 1992 as it was, quote, impractical although they did reverse this decision and resumed research by 2001. But I wasn't able to find out if this regulation was actually developed. That's such a government thing, though. Can you imagine life-saving procedures? Oh, well, it's impractical. We can't recommend how people evacuate the rigs. Like, is the practicability issue that there's no safe way to evacuate these rigs? In which case, why do we let people work on them? That's ridiculous. So all of this doesn't even get into the difficulty of recovering lifeboats and bringing victims from the lifeboat onto the rescue ship. Nets and rope ladders are common, but if the victims are suffering from hypothermia, as they were in this accident, they're unable to grab those ropes or climb those ladders. The commission did also find that if each man had been equipped with a life suit, many of them may have survived. These suits are equipped with life-saving features such as whistles and personal flotation and keep you safe from hypothermia for a long period of time, even if you are submerged in the water. So let's break down the failures involved here. Failure of the crew to properly operate the ballast controls. Although to be clear, this was not their fault and the crew were the victims here. Failure of the rig's owners and operators to properly train the crew members. Failure of the rig's owners to design a ship that could withstand the conditions it was operating within. 
failure of the manufacturer, Mitsubishi, to build a ship that could withstand the conditions it was operating within. Failure of the regulator to mandate the life-saving equipment and training that must be kept on board. So here yet again, much like last week, we see very little evil or criminal activity. Just everyday professionals making what they believe to be professional decisions in their standard office buildings that led 84 men to losing their lives at sea. I would argue in this case, more so than last week, that the failure of the company to train the men in the ballast control system borders on kind of evil and criminal. That's just common sense, and it should never have been neglected. In this case, much of the blame was put squarely on the shoulders of the companies that owned and operated the rig. Both the U.S. Coast Guard report and the Canadian Commission report focused on the lack of proper training and equipment as the main cause of the accident which I would agree with. If you can believe it, this wasn't the end of the tragedies involved in this accident. The Ocean Ranger had sunk in relatively shallow water, and it posed a danger to other ships or rigs that would pass through the busy area. So the decision was made to tow it into deeper water and sink it there. Two divers were killed in an underwater explosion during this operation. A third was killed in the same month by a falling object as he returned to the surface. Lawsuits involving just the moving of this rig were settled out of court for around $20 million. The Ocean Ranger Families Foundation was formed to help the families of the men who had died. Chaired by Lorraine Michael, she became the leader of the provincial NDP in 2006. The NDP is one of the four Canadian political parties. Um, So she chaired the foundation and offered financial support, counseling, and attended the subsequent hearings and inquiries on the family's behalf. The foundation later became more involved in pushing for increasing safety regulations in the offshore oil industry. Lawsuits were filed against both the companies that owned and operated the rig, but any settlements that happened occurred out of court, and I wasn't able to see the amounts. This tragedy has also been immortalized in many works of writing and art, and the east coast of Canada has a very unique art, writing, artistic landscape. There's a lot of famous um, plays, painters, etc. that come from there. The Ocean Ranger Memorial, located on the grounds of the Confederation Building in St. John's, was sculpted by artist A. Stuart Montgomery. The late singer-slash-songwriter Ron Hines composed the song Atlantic Blue about the Ocean Ranger. Lisa Moore's 2009 novel February deals with the aftermath and there have been collections of memoirs and stories published about the disaster. But Who Cares Now was a book by Douglas House, published in 1987. Rig, an oral history of the Ocean Ranger disaster by Mike Herfernan, was published in 2009 and was adapted into a stage play. In July 2019, a joint study by the International Organization of Masters, Mates, and Pilots and Dalhousie University Department of Industrial Engineering looked at why maritime disasters continue to take place, focusing on the Ocean Ranger disaster and coming to the same conclusions on the poor training involved. A man named Lloyd Ranger worked on the Ocean Ranger and had left just four days before the Ocean Ranger sank. Most men on the Ocean Ranger weren't allowed to carry cameras, apparently. I found that interesting, and I'd love to say that's tied into the poor safety culture on board, But I don't know what it's like now. I don't know if that's a common rule or if that was just at the time. I would imagine if that is a common rule, it would be a little bit hard to um, 
enforced now just because everyone's cell phone has a camera, but maybe they aren't even allowed cell phones on board since they're at sea, and I imagine you wouldn't get cell service anyway. I don't know, though. Maybe uh, maybe they still aren't allowed cameras. Anyway, in the 80s, on this rig, they were not allowed cameras. But Lloyd Ranger needed a camera for his work, apparently, and he took some recreational photos as well. So in 2017, he donated his entire collection of photos to Provincial Archives. Also, they noted in this article that back in the 1980s, when this disaster happened, a Soviet ship sank in the same area around the same time. So as they were finding bodies, they needed to know if the bodies were Soviet bodies or those of the deceased from the Ocean Ranger. And uh, this man, Lloyd Ranger, helped with that. He said that it was actually easy work since, uh, even with the men he didn't know on board, since the Soviet crew tended to have big beards, but the people on the Ocean Ranger weren't allowed beards because of the masks and such they had to wear for their work. I want to finish up with some words from the Royal Commission Chair Alexander Hickman. He says he still thinks about the disaster every February 15th. Quote, I think about the weather that prevailed that day, and I'd like to think there won't be any repetition. But that may be wishful thinking, because the sea is so powerful, so angry, so unremitting. Whew. Okay, that was a heavy one, but that was the Ocean Ranger. For more disaster diving, I will see you next Friday. If you want to see photos from this disaster, please uh, follow the Instagram at Disaster Diving Podcast or check out the Twitter at Disaster Diving Podcast. Or you can send me an email at disasterdivingpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next week. Bye.